Hello, I'm Marcus Railton, and this is the Scots Care Podcast. Scots Care is the only charity dedicated to helping disadvantaged Scots in London through a range of support, including mental health therapy, financial grants, advocacy, sheltered housing for older Scots, job coaching, social events, befriending, and support for children and families. The charity's been running for 400 years to help break the cycle of poverty experienced by some Scots. In this series of the Scots Care podcast, I'll be chatting to celebrities and supporters of the charity that have also forged a life in the capital away from home and about the ups and downs that can bring. Today, I'm chatting with Isla Sinclair, one of Scotland's foremost and best-known traditional singers. Isla was singing before she was even walking, and her recordings are still used for reference in the School of Scottish Studies. To me, even before the music, she was the lady on my TV on a Saturday night, and I must admit to being just a little nervous to finally be meeting her. Scots Care. The charity helping to break the cycle of poverty some Scots find in London. Hi, Isla. Hi, Marcus. I know this is an odd thing to start with, but we've never met and we've never spoken before. But I kind of feel like I've known you all my life because you've been a well-known name to me since since I was a wee boy, really. Exactly. So you're of a certain age that can remember because <laughs> it's well, a long time since I was doing a lot on the television. But anybody of, um, shall we say, middle age and onwards would pretty well remember some of the work that, you know, I did on television and and so on and so forth. And you've been a well-known name much longer then you haven't been a well-known name. Is that kind of, does that form the kind of person that you, that you became? Um, that's interesting. I think the well-knownness bit, I was sort of not as well-known as Andy Stewart and so on when I was in Scotland, but I was getting very well-known because I'd kind of crossed over from just being in the folk scene and doing the folk clubs and so on, and I'd crossed over into the various light entertainment programmes, like with a welcome to the Cayleys and what was that thing that STV used to do? Oh, thingamajig. Thingamajig. Exactly. So whereas a lot of the folk singers, perhaps it wouldn't have fitted them or they couldn't have um, transferred their skills, shall we say. I was able to be a bit adept there and get from one to the other and earn a few bob to keep me going till the next programme and so on. And thus, through television and radio and so on, I became you know, quite well known. Uh, as I say, I don't think I was quite the star that Andy and these others were, but uh, I was certainly getting up there with them and becoming well known in Scotland and and perhaps beyond a bit as well. I was doing a lot of touring abroad and so on. So uh, it was really the generation game that made me a household name, I would say. And do people presume, as you went through this period of fame, did people presume they knew you where You'd be walking around Sainsbury's and people would say, oh, hello, and not quite realise oh, yeah. they didn't know you. Absolutely. There's, they say, hello, Isla, how are you doing? Or how's Larry? And all, you know, that's during the Generation Game spell and thereafter. I was amazed, but after a few weeks, how that kicked in. It, quite extraordinary, because prior to that, yes, people had perhaps recognised me in Scotland or wherever, and my name was known, and whether they would instantly put my name to the face before is, is debatable. But my goodness me, once that programme, which was going out, what was it, beaming into 16 million homes every week, and then more when ITV went on strike, 
I think we got 26 million or something at one stage. So virtually everybody at some stage would have seen this programme in the United Kingdom. And so wherever I went, I was recognised. It was um, a, a quite a shock, actually. Well, that's I had... what I was going to ask, because I, 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 I thought what I will say to you is that I do want to talk about your music and your musical background, and I want to talk to you about your family. But I kind of wanted to start a little bit forward and talk to you about that time, because this was a time of television before it was diluted by Netflix and Amazon Prime. There only was three channels, and you were mm-hmm. 19 that must have been quite mind-blowing to be watched by 26 No, 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 no. I was not 19. I was 26 when I started the Generation Game. Oh. Um, yes, yes, I was getting on already. <laughs> <laughs> you looked. I looked at a photograph of it the other day and I thought you looked so young. I know. I did look young. And I was young, actually, in my own self. I was young, um, very young. Was it a lot to take on emotion? That's what I was, uh, you know, whether it's naive or emotionally immature, was it a lot to take on at that point? No, no, emotionally, I think I was very immature. I could sing Barbara Allen some of these ballads at the age of 12 and understood the great sadness and the terror and all the other emotions. I understood all that very well. What I didn't perhaps get quite such a grip on was real life as it was now. I was in medieval times mainly, <laughs> but the emotions, of course, are, st- are still the same for people, whether medieval or present time. But to go back to the generation game. Well, I think nobody uh, is used to fame, not even those who are trained for it, and whether it's the royal family or whatever it is. Nobody knows what that's going to be like or how you're going to react till you're actually in it. Mm. And I know many people desire it because it seems like, you know, a great thing, I suppose, to have other people knowing who you are and all that kind of thing. But uh, it's not what you think when you get there. <laughs> were, you, were you tempted by the showbiz lifestyle in London? No. Well, I mean, before I knew it, Perhaps I was a bit. And, you know, I remember actually going to see, um, what's Warren Beatty's sister called? You know, the, oh, goodness me, oh. my brain. You know, um, what's her name? The, the, act- the actress, yes, for yes. goodness. Come on, you can do it. <laughs> the singer and actress and all the rest of it. Anyway, I went to this great show and she was singing and dancing, Sue Brett style, and absolutely fantastic. And I went on my own, because I often went to things on my own, actually. And anyway, I, I remember watching that and thinking, God, that's fantastic. And Kelly McLean. I think I got it, exactly. I knew I knew who she was. Uh, <laughs> I just land, couldn't remember the, the name. of my brain it. just took a little bit of time to kick in there. <laughs> yeah, but I was filling the gap while you were thinking. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I thought, God, you know, I'm, I'm going to be like that one day. I'm going to, everybody's going to know who I am and all this sort of thing. But little did I imagine in a million years that it would actually be through a game show and the generation came out just in a million years. That one I did not expect. Looking at the stuff you did early on in your career, and I was thinking, I want to ask Isla this, but, you know, I don't want to offend her, you know, and I might be wrong, but is there an element that the work that brought Isla Sinclair to the attention of most people is maybe not what fed your soul the most? Completely right. Absolutely right. It's always been the singing and the songs and interacting with people in probably smaller venues, actually, and that sort of thing. I've always enjoyed the the traditional songs that I've sung have given me the most sustenance and grounding and sanity, actually, uh, of anything. I mean, no, 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 show business is, is 
very superficial and wasn't for me the kind of um, that kind of world, although I did dabble in it a little bit, but it really wasn't for me. In fact, what I used to do when I was doing the Generation game was to have a little Kaylee every, at least if not every weekend, every other weekend, and then I'd invite um, my chums or whoever it was I'd met that week that I thought was a nice kind of person. I'd invite them along, get them all there, get in a pile of buffet-type food, and we'd all have a good sing, and I could sort of uh, reenact my <laughs> my days as the folk singer and all the rest of it, because that had kind of been put in the back burner for those few years. So that was good fun. I used to enjoy that. I didn't really enjoy going to um, other people's gatherings because they they didn't have the same sort of singing and things, which I enjoyed. You know, the musical aspect. Well, who was making the decisions for you back then? Because you obviously. I mean, you must have had a manager or an agent, but you, you, you sound, you've always sounded like you had your head screwed on. You said, no, this is, this is what feeds my soul. I'm going in this direction where there must have been somebody or, or, or powers that be pushing you in another direction that maybe you didn't want to go in. Well, actually, I never had um, a really a proper manager, I suppose. Certainly not in the days when I was um, most well known, but I did have a very good agent, excellent agent. He was quite convinced that it was the personality and the, the generation game sort of thing that was the big seller and the singing was very secondary. And certainly in those days, we're talking back in 1970, late 70s, early 80s, folk music, well, I mean, if you've seen the Coen Brothers film, when the guy sings The Shoals of Herring on one of these fabulous mm. traditional, another song, Queen Jane, and the, the agent looks at him and says, I just can't see the money in it. <laughs> 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 and basically that was it. I mean, you could barely scrape a living together by doing the folk scene. So I suppose Peter Pritchard, who was my agent then, quite rightly thought, for goodness sake, you know, it's uh, there's nothing in that. But for me, there was everything in, 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 my, in, in the singing and the songs. The songs are just so great because they are coming from people's emotions because they're, they weren't written to make money on the hit parade or any such thing. They were written from people's experiences and from their their joys, their hopes, their desires, their sadnesses, their tragedies. And and, and, and also the ballads themselves are just, goodness me, they're like films in, in, in themselves. They're episodic and exciting and, you know, just all, all of life is, is in them. And when you started out and you, you came down south and you were in London, did you have to tone down your Scottishness? No, no, I've always just been what I've been. I've been a right mixture, you see, because uh, although I started my life in, uh, well, actually in Grangemouth, but only for a few months, I was born there. But my mother hastened back to Fenechty, Fendochty, in the northeast of Scotland when I was just a few months old. And we stayed there until uh, 1956, when I was now four. And we moved to England. And I had four years down in a little hamlet in England, which, oh gosh, I, I loved it. I mean, it was really super. I went to first school there and used to run freely through all the fields near in Bradfield Green near Crewe and thoroughly enjoyed my young life. Um, I don't think my mother was having a great time, by the way, but that's another story. But anyway, we moved back to Aberdeen in 1960 when I was uh, just about eight. And, and, from, and we stayed in Aberdeen for the next day. Uh, Oh, five, seven years till I moved back up to Bucky for my last couple of years in school. So I've forgotten what the original question was now. But <laughs> Scottishness, Scottishness, Scottishness. Ah, Scottishness. Well, I must have... My mother spoke in broad Doric. Well, she she would go between broad Doric and then proper English, if you like. She could 
do the, the two languages, if you like. And she obviously spoke to me a lot in the Doric when I was wee, when I was little, and uh, and would have continued to do so in England. But, of course, as you do, you pick up the local accent. And by the time I got back to Aberdeen in 1960, I was... Uh, I spoke with a broad Cheshire accent. Well, of course, it, it was amusing to all the other pupils and horrifying to me, who was very embarrassed about it all, so I kept my trap shut a fair amount of the time. And then uh, gradually, obviously, I had a balance between whatever it was I'd learned up till then. And I got in the Doric, though. I can understand it perfectly, all the Doric from her, and I can speak it nabad, and I can certainly sing in it. Um, but uh, the English thing was modified by living in Aberdeen and the North East for the rest, and, and, and Scotland until I moved back to England when I was 27, 28, you know. Mm. So the, the accent you're hearing now has not changed very much. I think mm. you'll hear my voice is higher in younger recordings. You hear me um, yes. speaking in a slightly higher voice and so on, but that's because I'm, I'm wearing on. <laughs> <laughs> well, your, your mother, Zeta, used a beautiful phrase to describe you. She described you as my linty bird long before she talked or walked. She sang. And I, I love that. It's just so simple. But what, what is a linty bird? It's a, just a birdie it sings, a singing oh. bird. A Are your earliest memories of song in the home that you were born in and as you moved around? Oh, my earliest memories are, well, hmm, I'm never half sure if it's what I've been told or what I actually remember. But being in, in, in Fnechty, when we were living there, um, whenever I was lost, my mother knew exactly where to find me. And I'd be with the Salvation Army Band, either at the rehearsal hall or traipsing up and down the streets with them. Because at that time, there was there was no pubs in Fnechty, but about 13 different denominations of churches, you know, <laughs> including the Salvation Army, my favourite. And I used to sing with them and uh, the man who ran the Salvation Army there he he was called Johnny Cowpey and uh, he would say there's a wee girly here and she just loves to sing and I'd trot that way down and sing my heart I just loved to sing that was it it basically loved to sing and so did Zeta of course my mother loved to sing and she uh, was now running the brown owls the, the, the brownies and uh, my sister and I would go along even though I was rather young to be going I got to go as an honorary pixie and uh, that, I, I performed my first concert at the, the, the wee Halley in Finechty, <laughs> singing nursery rhymes. And uh, my mum said, she, I wondered what would happen when they opened the curtain. Would I stay and sing or would I, I run off? Well, I stayed and I sang and I nearly threw myself off the stage at Goosey Goosey Gander and doing various actions to go along with the nursery rhymes. But I uh, thoroughly enjoyed it and that was the, perhaps the beginning of the performance era, shall we say. And my mother always always encouraged it and loved to perform herself, you see. So that was um, that was a, a wonderful thing. And I would sing anything, anything I heard, anything that was on the radio, and I would, you know, sing my heart. And she loved it. She never, I was never told to be quiet. I was always, it was always fine that I was singing. Oh, well, let, let's hear something now. Let's see. This is My Love is Like a Red, Red Rose. How, how long have you been singing this? When did you first record it? About 2000 and two I think I made an arrangement for it I was asked to sing it a Burns thing and I was away with my partner and I think I was still in the throes of a great deal of love <laughs> or something <laughs> and anyway I was just I came up with this arrangement which is slightly different in timing and so on to the usual ones I'd heard you know which are very very good by Kenneth McKellar etc but anyway I did it away I thought I could sing it and express it best 
and um, and that is what I did. And so it's it's perhaps not the, the song that's been with me in my heart for the longest, but it's certainly one that holds a big bit of my heart. I do I do think it's an extremely beautiful piece. My love is like a red red rose. Oh, my love is like the red red rose that's newly sprung in June. Oh, my love is like the melody that sweetly Scots in London in need of support, financial, practical or emotional help. How strong is the traditional music scene in Scotland these days, Isla? Do you see younger folk coming through and carrying that torch? Very much so. Um, people, uh, t- terrific talent uh, musically, 
And the bagpipes, of course, have been encouraged greatly as long as well as fiddle playing, etc. Oh, I think there's a I think there's a big surge, huge surge, uh, compared to when I was young. And the standard is terrific. Lots of young, good you good young singers, uh, lots of uh, musicians. Uh, I don't think there's any fear that it will vanish, but I still think it's only a small proportion of the country who are are aware of how wonderful it can all be. Can I ask you a silly question? Now, this seems like a silly question, but I'm totally naive about things. But do you have to sing every day? Is it like going to the gym? Do you have to keep vocally in shape? Well, you have to. But I love singing, so it's fine for me. But I've got a wee roomie here that I can go up to and I can sing for half an hour, two quarters of an hour, whatever, just to keep... Yes, you do have to keep going. And I'm not a trained singer at all, but just to keep that... Because uh, it is just a, a muscle, you know, your vocal cords need to be exercised. And Anyway, I enjoy it. It's, a, it's like... Um, it's uh, where people go and work out in the gym. When I sing, I'm sure that I get the same kind of release of tensions or stress or whatever yeah. it is you're needing to, to do. I mean, I, I don't go to the gym. I do walk. I do gardening. And I look after my bees. I like having my bees. And I love to sing. I still love to sing. And I think that would be the hardest thing if I couldn't. Uh, I want to talk more about your mum. In her own right, a very skillful singer and a writer. Yes, absolutely. She was writing long before I was uh, a twinkle in anybody's eye and had written many, many poems. And uh, I'm in about 70 that I've managed to research, collate and put together and they're found on my website, along with 20 songs that she wrote, very beautiful songs. What she had was a, a natural ability with words, along with um, a very lyrical, melodic um, and <laughs> melodic ability to give her these lovely tunes that she um, thought of because she couldn't read music or anything, so it was all picked out by notes, you know, on the on the piano, an old piano we had. And also, I suppose she was very idealistic and romantic, actually, and that comes through too. And uh, she just had had a great way of of catching things and putting them together. And anyone who cares to read any of her work or hear any of it, it's all, all available there through through my own website. And and honestly, I'm very proud of it and I was able to finally get it all put together from all our wee bitties of paper and scraps of writing, finally be able to get it all together during um, lockdown. Though I was near-driven, demented with punk, trying to punctuate poetry, it's not an easy thing. I had to try and think what she would be thinking, you know, exactly what she was meaning and try to do it. And, and it is very, very difficult. Very yeah, difficult. But you know what? I think it comes across beautifully. I read every poem in the book. And oh, you I, did? Great. I think what runs through nearly all of them is a real appreciation for the beauty of nature. And what, Absolutely. I, took, what I took away from much of her writing was to enjoy the simpler things, live in the moment, be grateful for what you have. And after I read them, and the, I liked the, the ones about children, and I liked mm. the one you know, that mentioned the sea and the beach and... And I wondered, if did this philosophy extend to the way she raised you, you know, in a kind of, not a simple way, but just to smell the coffee a bit every day? Very much so. She was very, I wouldn't say, moralistic isn't the word exactly, but she she had, very well, what I would consider very high values in life and what was important and how to be and to be honest and, you know, to 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 particularly to take all you could from nature. And she's absolutely spot on, you know. And, and at the same time, where, where you read it in these, these wonderful words, 
But she mm. was obviously a very, I'm not a tough woman, but a strong woman bringing up three kids in tough times. Very tough times indeed, and uh, after a, a, a first fairly unhappy marriage and, go, and going on her own with me and her other two children to live in Findochty alone, um, that I think was an extremely difficult time for her. And uh, then that was why she decided, having met some people in England, to go down there. But yes, you're right, because also physically she she had a lot of ailments. I mean, she was she had double pneumonia at the age of three, and they had a coffin all built for her, and uh, she survived. At twelve, she contracted double pneumonia again. She then, in her teens, I think, got diphtheria, rheumatic fever, teens and early twenties. By which time she was married and had a child. She lost a child. Um, all kinds of tremendously difficult illnesses and losses during the the wartime uh, she lost i think it was five members of the family in the space of 18 months i mean both her brothers her mother her father and her child i mean she was only 23 and gosh how does that affect the rest of your life in her case it made her made her survive well she survived I love the fact that you've done this, you know, I think, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently, you know, but chronicling experience, your family's experience, because my dad passed away at the start of lockdown, it was April 2020, and my mum had passed away a few years before, and yeah. I've, got, I've got three children, and my oldest boy now, who's 13, he asks me questions, and I kind of, before I would have said, oh, go and ask your papa, and now there's a lot of answers that I can't possibly give him, so I think... It's a wonderful thing to actually get these get these facts written down for future generations. Yeah, I think it's all the way that you it's the way that you view when your parents die, you realize you are no longer the child and you it, it changes your whole perception of living and of life and it's quite frightening actually, I think, because you're it's now all down to you and you are responsible particularly when you have your children, you must give them good advice and try to give them honest advice that will help them and at the same time you don't want to be lecturing folk all the time and I think it is by example because every all of us every single one of us humans who live on this planet suffer in one way shape or form and nobody nobody gets out free nobody nobody does there are different problems for in different ways and I think it is then how you how you have the support and where you look for your support, whether that is through your communing with nature, singing, um, friendship, all sorts of different ways of, of having support. But most important that you know you, 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 how to look for it and where to look for it. Are you close to your two lads? Oh, very. Oh, incredibly close. Yes. Very, very close to them. And did they follow you? Into, did, did they sing or are they in show business? <laughs> They, they. My elder son is is. It will sing at the drop of a hat and in any possible venue. But he, he's he hasn't uh, taken it up as a profession. No, he hasn't taken it as a profession. But by goodness, he's got a good voice, and and he's a he's a great guy. He's a wonderful guy. I, I, I love both of them so dearly. And Callum, my younger one, is extremely kind, and always always helpful and uh, patient and so I'm so wonderfully proud of them both you know um, they have the most important things in life they have a good moral compass and they have um, and again that sounds slightly sort of uh, what do you call it 
preachy, but I don't mean it to be so, but they do, and they know what's important. And what's important is, is are the basic things everybody tells you about all the time, kindness and patience and, and you know, forgiving and remembering that... Um, forgive yourself as well, by the way. <laughs> That's also... Well, a this is it. Be kind to yourself, because, you know, the world is a hard place. Oh, it's a tough, tough place, believe me. And oh, I've had plenty of times, Zeta had plenty of times of down. I asked her towards the end of her life, actually, how how she'd got through so many difficult times. And she actually said, well, I just hoped that the bad times would go through quickly and I'd get on to the good times. That's a lovely thought. It's a lovely adage. And I'd like to play something and, and, and say thank you for speaking to me today. It's been really interesting. But I'd like to play oh, something by, you. by your mum. I want to play the Bonnie Boats of Bucky to, to play out the podcast today. Can you just tell me briefly, is that one of her poems? But you have set this to music. No, nope. all the tunes are hers. All the tunes. This is one of her 20 songs, if you like, that she wrote. And all of these songs and tunes, all the words and all the tunes are hers. And um, I just sing them. I just sing them. This one actually was written probably in the 60s when we were in Aberdeen. And she was a member of the Aberdeen Folk Song Club. And it won a competition there and so on and so forth. That uh, and I've always continued to think. I think it's awfully bonny. Her her own father, my grandfather, was a fisherman. Had his own boat for some of the time. He was a fisherman, and the boats of Bucky played a large part in Zeta's young life, and indeed even in my young life because I remember when the harbour at Bucky was stout for the boaties and bonny they were. Even though they were, oh, even though by that time they were mere kind of trawlers and that kind of thing. You know, the old fifies and so on. I think it's an awfully bonny song. And I think her should her parents, my grandparents, have been able to hear it, they'd have been extremely proud. Well, this is the Bonnie Boats of Bucky. And Isla Sinclair, thank you for taking part in the Scots Care podcast today. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. See the bonny boats of Bucky Sailing out across the bay Now there's a sight on a summer's night Before the sun sets for the day Before the sun sets for the day See the bonny boat so bucky Spreading out across the bay They are prawning till the dawning Sailing home at break of day Sailing home at break of day See the fishermen, oh Bucky Happy crewmates, you may say, but hear them bawling at the hall and tailing prawns we calls at bay. Tailing prawns we calls at bay. See the fisher folk, oh Bucky, what a price they have to pay To earn their bread they mourn their dead But go to see another day 
but go to see another day. See the bonny boats o' Bucky all lit up across the bay. Now there's a sight on a winter's night when northern lights sweep o'er the bay. When northern lights sweep o'er the bay. Scots Care 